0: Lexus of Lexington, home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com. Did you know that half of America is single? Hollywood has never produced anything like this before. The Dating Project, a groundbreaking documentary that follows five single people, ages 18 to 40 as they search for authentic and meaningful relationships. There is no script. There are no actors. These are real people trying to find love and happiness in an age of swiping left or right. From Empower Pictures, Paulist Productions, Family Theater Productions, and Pure Flix, you can now own The Dating Project. Save the date by visiting... TheDatingProjectMovie.com And go a step further and help others in your circle date differently by partnering with Ascension Press. Visit shop.ascensionpress.com to acquire the companion study guide. The Dating Project Movie is now available on DVD and digital download on Amazon, iTunes, and Walmart. Please visit TheDatingProjectMovie.com for details.
1: Hello and welcome to Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Mark Shea. And we are here today as we are here every time we do this podcast to talk about Life, the universe, and everything from a Catholic perspective. I'm your host, Mark Shea, and today I have with me Mr. Tom McDonald. Those of you who are old hands at this podcast will remember Tom McDonald. And we are here today to uh uh well to explore, to celebrate, to uh enjoy the magnificence of his new project. Weird (laughs) Catholic. Uh, Weird Catholic, I've seen on your Facebook page, do you have like a website for Weird Catholic as well?
2: Uh, Yeah, I decided um, to... Give myself a footprint for all the stuff I've been doing for the last 10 years or so. That's a little all my uh, history writing and oddball stuff and oddball theology. Um, okay. And I, yeah. I parked weirdcatholic.com. Now, for those of you who have trouble with this horrible English language, it's w-e-i-r-d catholic.com. Yes. And I know you could remember that by the rule I before E, except after C, except in a neighbor and way, except that weird doesn't follow that rule. So, ignore that.
1: <laughs> uh good and it doesn't rhyme either, but uh you know.
2: No, weird weirdcatholic.com. Um I did about a month ago I decided, you know, I hadn't been doing anything, you know, with all my old stuff. i had been meaning to I tell you what the real reason is. I've been meaning to write a book of um You totally I, I'd actually I've been actually working on a ghost book on all my – because I did so much research into Catholics and ghosts. I had about 50,000 words worth of material I was trying to put together, and I just had trouble getting over the the last hump. So I decided if I parked a website and challenged myself to do new content every week within a year or so, I'd probably have about 50,000 words of content, and I'd probably have a book. Well, plus, um,
1: you know, you can fill it with all kinds of cool illustrations because
2: uh... (laughs) – Yeah. Which I've been doing, which uh, lately it's been um, – You can. I have all kinds – see, I've been doing this for a long time. As I explain, if you go to weirdcatholic.com and you go to the about thing, you'll see kind of how this – what my logic is for it and how it evolved. See, uh, the, uh, I was born in 68 and grew up when um, the weird was kind of a cultural wallpaper. You know, it was the age of a lot of books, Charles Berlitz books about – Oh, the Bermuda Triangle, the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, stuff that's all pure hokum. We know now there was a whole lot of nothing to do with any of that. If there was a Bigfoot, I would say the million cell phones out of there would have gotten a picture of them by now, probably. Same thing for UFOs and all the rest of that stuff. Well,
1: except Bigfoots have uh, an ability to detect electromagnetic.
2: Mm, No, it's true. It's true, Mark, and, and, and we should definitely discuss that in the second hour of this one-hour
1: show. given to them by the aliens. Come on, everybody knows this. Keep up.
2: I, hey, look, I'm working my way through the $6 million man. I actually am, and I'm not up to that episode yet, so don't spoil it. <laughs> See, there's a lot of non-Gen Xers out there who may not even get that reference about Bigfoot and the $6 million man, and, and that pleases me because I like to think we're making references millennials don't understand. Well... um, It's something to shoot for. You know, the 70s, we had a lot of great stuff. Aside from that, we had a show that I actually got on DVD a few years ago, and on sick days and rainy days, I worked my way through it. It's Leonard Nimoy's awesome show called... You know what it is.
1: I remember it, but I can't remember the name. What was it? uh, In Search Of. In Search Of, that's it.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: Leonard Nimoy.
2: Yeah. yeah, oh, he was great. There was um, also something
1: with Robert Stack, if memory serves. Well, there's
2: Unsolved Mysteries, which is the mysteries. Night. Yeah, that, has some, that was a little more hokum, because, uh, not a, a little less hokum, I meant to say, because they were actually doing real crimes and getting them solved. I think they arrested like a thousand <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. That was actually about, like, people who had been kidnapped and they couldn't find yeah. them anymore and stuff like and that.
2: And once in a while, I watched the other day they did, like, an episode on Medjugorje, believe it or not, and I thought of you. Really? Um yeah, yeah, because they were they were pitching I'm a hard. On total,
1: it. total believer in Medjugorje, as we all yeah. know.
2: Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably not going to post on that one. Okay, but
1: um, yeah, well, that's getting know, us closer to weird Catholic. Yeah.
2: So. And then there was, um, Ripley's Believe It or Not. You know, yeah. with um, Jack Palance.
1: Yeah, Jack Palance.
2: Well, he's the only
1: guy on earth who could say those words. Believe it or not yeah
2: and remember it began with each thing the strange the bizarre the unexpected and you know rod serling was still alive for a little while in there and he was doing cheesy documentary narrations too um you know yeah. actually i think yeah. he did the early feature length documentaries that actually uh became in search of uh later on was the okay. same producers and then Rod. he, died he was very young
1: he was uh he was also the narrator for um the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau and
2: Well see, I don't remember that, and I watch that all the time.
1: Yeah, and he would like you you kept expecting him to say, you know, Jacques Cousteau is about to dive into <laughs> <laughs> he just kept to say the Twilight Zone. But then he didn't do it and you were very disappointed, you know. Yeah,
2: something else I watch on my office. See, I don't I, we don't have cable and I got rid of Netflix because I was tick sick of their their horrible new pro-abortion programming Uh and so i mostly just you know sit around watching british detective shows and twilight zone episodes (laughs) and stuff like that now when i do watch tv and old movies but um you know these old in search ofs are are just such fun i mean you can't believe half of what they say but um that's half the fun is trying to figure out what's true Uh
1: uh-huh well uh Let's talk about weird Catholic because you know one of the great things about being Catholic is being uh, weird. Is that it's just full of such weird things. Uh, It
2: is. Well, you know, we've had two thousand years to do it.
1: It's true, and uh, you know, part of it is that you know some of the weird things are actually true. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, I mean, there's there's uh, uh, what's his name, the patron saint of pilots, who. uh, had a scene of uh, yeah uh had a disturbing ha- disturbing habit of flying and levitating that embarrassed oh, oh oh
2: oh uh, joseph cupertino yeah uh, joseph I, cupertino i would forgotten he was pilot I, I my pilots yeah and uh yeah he did he would be in prayer and he would levitate um
1: and it was embarrassing was... for him and yeah people would like come to his parish and he would levitate and it would humiliate him, and he hated it but
2: <laughs> um if i'm remembering he was he was also he was uh for lack of a better word he was simple minded if i'm remembering correctly I, that um
1: that i not and... remember.
2: But the thing was we got to divide some of this weird Catholic and we'll talk about one in a minute cuz it was the request from a reader that you gave me and I went ahead yes. and did some research on it.
1: but not a true story but uh, not true, a true story true in the sense that it was a real legend
2: so, yeah but i mean the, uh, if we look at if we look at some saint miracles um and this is where our borderline is some of them i'm i, I have no problem believing i have no problem believing joseph Levitated. He used to levitate a prayer, and they used to have to kind of hold on to the edge of his cloak to keep him from floating off. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are know. there are those stories that actually have real documentation, and then there's well, as we should yeah. get into for the delectation of our reader who requested yeah. it. Yeah. yeah there's well, Saint Christopher, the dog-headed man. <laughs>
2: And even that one, there's an explanation that's the common explanation that I don't like. I don't like the common explanation. But wow. let's
1: we'll um, make when- up a new one then.
2: Well, I did. Well, if you go to Weird Catholic, it's, uh, I don't know when, you, when your people are going to have access to this, but it should be at the top there, and if you can't find it, there's a link called Saintly Strangeness that brings it to, to all my saint stories, Because and this is filling up now. I'm bringing up some of my old stuff. I'm writing some new stuff. Um, <clears throat> but what I did was I went back to—there's a lot about St. Christopher that is written, and the the real deal of it is— You know as a historian or someone who does historical research i mean i guess i have a degree in history so i guess i can call myself that um go for it we know nothing about saint christopher saint christopher was a name on a martyrology we have saint christopher was killed in in the third or fourth century under either decius or Dacian. we don't know which um and that's what we know and we don't knows no more (laughs) Uh, some people in the Eastern churches have been, <laughs> you like that.
1: That has never slowed down the Catholic imagination before. No, not at all.
2: <laughs> There's some attempt to link them in in Eastern traditions and in Coptic traditions with a saint called Menas and say that the same person M E N A S I'm not sure how you pronounce that since my coptic is rusty um okay but that he they're actually the same person and that he was this and that he was a surger uh soldier in the valerian cohort uh cohort from a Mar- mamarica Mar- northern africa near libya which is a place where it was believed the people with the heads of dogs came from and you see these you find these things uh Sometimes just junk sites online, which you can skip, but sometimes people have written real The historians have written some real research into them going over, you know, some documents like there's a 14th century Coptic document and um, saying, you know, this is the real deal. And um, <laughs> my opinion is that if you're trying to lock down the real deal on a guy's name in a martyrology from the third century on a 14th century uh uh, Ethiopic document. I meant. Then you're probably barking up the wrong tree. <laughs>
1: as it, as so, it verse, so, to speak. After, yeah, I after. know, I did
2: that. I did that for you. <laughs> I was. I, I'm hoping. I'm hoping your your tech person adds the rim shots. Uh, this, that is good. Yeah, yeah. I'm putting these out there. Um, and but since we're Western Rite Catholics, I went with my old pal. Um, Jacobus de Voragine, uh, who wrote the Golden Legend, um... which is kind of my urtext, you know, for this kind of thing. That's okay. the book I return to again and again. And if you've never encountered the Golden Legend, you have missed one of the greatest, most pleasurable, and most spiritually, you know, rewarding treasures of the faith. And it's uh... you find it in two volumes with a tra- uh, new translation by William Granger Bryan. That's very readable. But what Jacobus did, and he's a saint, uh, he worked, you know, he he compiled everything that could be known, that was known about the saints. He, He went through sermons and hagiographies and vitae and stuff, and he created one book that was one of the most read books of the Middle Ages that all preachers could use. For when they were preaching on a feast day, and they could turn to pay to number one hundred, or wherever, let's say one hundred and fifty-six, and read the passage on Saint Luke the Evangelist, get a little thing about you know a little bogus thing about it, what his name meant, which was almost always linguistic <laughs> philological nonsense. Uh-huh. Um, if you know the Golden Legend, you know that the name, the etymologies, are, are mostly gibberish. Um, and then all the lore that was known about that saint up until that point. Okay. And at some points, Jacobus would stop and say, this seems unlikely, about the point that would be <laughs> About the point that the guy sprouts the dog head. He says, like, this may just be a pious legend. And you're thinking, <laughs> very cautious and good of you, Jacobus. I'm glad you actually threw that flag on the field. <laughs> because that one probably is. But see, that's... Going at this too literally is misunderstanding the point of medieval hagiography, which was not always... Sometimes it was very preoccupied with recording received tradition. You know, they worked on various levels, and sometimes it was more preoccupied in the absence of received tradition, of oral tradition, of something handed on literal about a saint with use, find, creating something didactic, something that could be used to teach, something about a saint in his life that spoke to the needs of the faithful. Right. And true or not was not relevant. And, you know, people had cues that you find when you spend enough time reading folklore, you know, I've read tens of thousands of pages of this stuff and saints' lives and things, you start to pick up the cues that they would have picked up orally so that you know as when the Brothers Grimm may maybe begin a story that says "Once upon a time," you right, know? exactly. You know yeah. that they're dealing in things that you're supposed to maybe not take fully literal.
1: This is what uh, this is what the author of Tobit does, by the way. Sure. Uh, so the author of Tobit makes uh, his hero the uncle of Ahikar. That's a cue to it, it would be like for an English speaking audience, it would be like telling a story and making your hero the uncle of Jack the Giant Killer. Right. The moment you read that as a as a native English speaker, you know what kind of story you 're in. This is not history, and a uh, hikar is a figure like Jack the Giant Killer in ancient near eastern uh, right. uh, storytelling and so yeah and so the author doesn 't laboriously. You know, start his story by saying, "I am now writing a work of fiction, right. He just drops that cue in so that the reader knows where he is and what kind of story he's reading,
2: right, you know, and you know sometimes you sometimes you find wise guys biblical wise guy biblical uh uh scholars who will like hold up a Bible and say, All of this is true, some of it happened um, <laughs> I don't yeah. care for that crack, but uh-huh. There's an element of truth in that all of it is true in that, you know, it's like C.S. Lewis's true myth. All right, of it yeah. is true in that all of it conveys truth, but it conveys truth in myriad forms and genres. And right. if you look at *Toba*, Tobit would have been understood by its readers as, as a novel, as right. a didactic uh, novel meant to teach you a lesson. Right. You know, and we write these today. We sit there and give our children, you know, uh... Narnia books or something, and say, Yeah, that's very, that's, there's Christian lessons in there. And then we turn to the Bible and say, But, you know, they wouldn't have done that here. This all actually happened. And right. Like, well, <laughs> you know, some of this is meant to be a lesson. You know, you do remember when we get to Jesus that he was teaching in stories. Right. Was yeah. there a prodigal son? I don't know. I think it doesn't matter if there was a, a prodigal son or not.
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: But obviously, this is a continual tradition of, of teaching through storytelling. And it's no less true because it didn't happen. So you know, and, then you, and then you get to the historical books, and those are obviously we're meant to take more literally. But we're a long way off. I, that's all just by, by preface. And since you said we got an hour, I'm just taking my dang old time here. That's, that's, good. Um, that's good. That's just by preface saying how we get to St. Christopher. Let's start with a basic fact that, you know, as, as a researcher, I can tell you the historical... I'm going to give you every historical bit of information about Christopher that we know. Wait a second. It's, it's going to come right now. <laughs> All right, there it was. Did you catch it? <laughs> That's every fact we have pinned down, including his name, because Christopher is not a name. It means Christ bearer. It would have been something adapted in the Christian times as a name. But at the time it's happening, it's an emerging name. It it, it was it was a description like when um, Luke begins his his scripture by addressing Theophilus, lover of God. Was there a Theophilus? Maybe. But my guess is he's addressing it to all those who
1: love God. Right. Yeah. (laughs)
2: You know, know, in, in the same way. So we don't even know which century he died in. Uh, so what happens is when this happens, what you have in early Christianity from the very beginning, you get Christian fan fiction. Um, just yeah. like the Book of Mormon is King James fan fiction. In right. the early days, you have what we call the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha, uh, you know, depending on whether it's Old or New Testament. Right. We have texts that are just meant to fill in the gaps and they're non-canonical. And in the same way, this happened with the saints. So, Over time, um, Christopher was not – there was no devotion to Christopher early on. I don't think we see any churches even named after him until perhaps the 7th century and no cultists developing until the Middle Ages, I believe, around the 12th century. We don't start to see 11th. 12th. We don't really see a, an, uh, an evolving cultist of him, particularly of him as a patron saint of travelers. Okay. Uh, and that becomes very popular because we also see a spike in pilgrimage. And these things all work together. So Jacobus in the golden legend tells us what was known at the time. And it's as good a summary as, what of, uh, uh, as anything of what, what would have been the operating knowledge of Christopher at the time. And the basic story, and I'll do the short version, you could read the long version um on the blog but he was a canaanite allegedly already we've got some problems there but we'll move on and um Uh he was a giant jacobus lists him as 12 feet tall more modest texts texts scale that back to seven feet tall he was in the service of a canaanite king and swore he would only serve the strongest person and one day he saw the king blessing himself at the mention of the Mm -hmm. devil And he realized that the king was afraid of the devil, so therefore the devil was more powerful than the king. So he says, I'm going to serve this this devil guy. And he goes off looking for a devil, finds some soldiers, and the leader of the soldiers, probably a band of renegade Roman soldiers... Uh, in different stories, you find different versions of this, It says, yeah, I'm the devil, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, because he realizes the usefulness I do of for having... You, Mac? <laughs> he, realize, he realizes the usefulness of having a seven-foot-tall guy on his team. Uh, so, um, <laughs> you know, the soldier who claims to be the devil is is walking down the road, and there's a wayside cross, and he takes a long detour to avoid it. He's terrified of this cross, and and despite the fact that <laughs> Christopher, who at the time in legend is named Reprobus, which basically just means reprobate, which is really more, again, a description than a name. It's not actually a name. Uh-huh. Um, says to – he's already seen his king crossing himself, so why he's mystified by this cross thing is anyone's guess. But the legend says he asks about this cross, and the devil tells him that about this man named Christ, so – Christopher goes off looking for some some way to serve Christ and finds a monk and they agree that he's going to help people across the river. You know, this is the the Christopher version any child would probably learn in any book of the saints. You know, and right. uh, Christopher um, helps people across a river where many travelers had died because of his size and strength. He's able to ford the river more easily, and then the child a child calls to him one day and asks him to help him across the river, and Christopher carries him. and halfway through, the the weight of the child becomes unbearable, and they almost drown, but Christopher gets to the other side and says, I felt like I was carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders, and the child says, not only were you carrying the weight of the world, but he who made it, and reveals that he was Christ, and Christopher was his servant, and so Christopher has... Some more further adventures winds up being martyred in an extravagant way, um, which, again, is in the post. And I had if you you might not have come across that one because it involves hundreds of arrows being suspended in midair and unable to strike him. And there's all kinds of fun stuff in that. And and the women sent to tempt him who wound up tearing down the false gods with their girdles. Um, so there's all kinds of fun stuff. <laughs> This is all straight out of the Golden Legend, by the way. Uh, okay. This is why this must be on your bedside if you are a Catholic and don't have this on your bedside. You are missing one of the great this and this. You know, the Bible, your devotional, you know, your 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 hours. Maybe uh, some Tolkien and, and the Golden Legend would be on every every Catholic bedside. This is good. So this and,
1: is this. Okay. Keep going. Keep going.
2: Okay. So. Finally, he's martyred, and the, and, and, we have, and the king is converted, and he celebrates his conversion by uh, decapitating everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus. So, okay. So, so king king's still not quite getting the Jesus thing. But solid,
1: solid medieval piety. Okay.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so that's the Christopher story. Okay. Now, when we go into Eastern iconography, you know what an icon is. You know, icons have a different role. In um, Eastern Christianity, than they do. What you see is you start seeing you see these very late. By the way, everybody acts like this is some weird medieval thing. All of the icons that I've found showing Christopher with the head of a dog and the body of a man are 17th century, 18th century. Okay, these are these. The the lore is early, and the and some of the pictures are early, but the tradition of making dog-headed Saint Christophers extends extremely late. Hmm. In terms of late modernism, uh, of early modernism, um, so what you get is is a saint with the head of a dog, and you say, "Aren't that quaint?" They thought he had the head of a dog. <laughs> um, now the common answer to this is very simple. This is the I'm going to give you the common answer. Now there was something, uh, there was a belief that there were a race of dog-headed men. Now. I'm going to say belief, and I'm going to put little quotes around that, because when somebody says people believed this, I think, again, they're applying modern notions of belief. You find very strange lore in ancient literature. If you read Herodotus, if you've read Isidore Seville, anyone in that gap, Pliny, you'll find things that you'd make a little head tilt and make a funny noise, like, what's that? And say, well, that's not real. And you really believe there were men with you know their heads in the middle of their chests and the heads of dogs and one foot that hopped around. You know, there's kind of like quasi um, Jonathan Swift type moments that emerge out of some of these alleged medieval natural histories.
1: I, I tend to think that it, it, to, instead of the word belief, because that I think that gives too much strength.
2: Right, too much to, weight.
1: To, yeah, I, I think it's more like ancients understood that we live in a weird world and who knows. There well, there, could, so- there could be something like that out there. They didn't spend they spent about as much time thinking about it as you spend thinking about Bigfoot. Right. Or Yeti, you know, or something like this. It's like you know, in the 19th century Gorillas, you, you want to know why King Kong was made? Here's why King Kong was made. Because gorillas were discovered when C, just shortly before Marion C. Cooper was born. And so he grew up in a world where gorillas were like new and mm-hmm. awesome. And, uh, you know, these were legends that had been talked about by uh, people that uh, Europeans kept calling savages, but turned out to be right
2: <laughs> right and, they have uh, this thing it's sort of like a human but covered in hair and has a very squat ah,
1: that's what you'd expect the savages in Africa to believe, <laughs> and then, oh, and it turns out they know what they're talking about because they live there that's right. <laughs> and meet these things, you know <laughs> and uh, but but it was like that. gorillas were the bigfoot of the 19th century, and sure. they turned out to be real. Yeah, And in antiquity, you had people who never traveled more than 20 miles from their home realizing that the world is really huge and there are all kinds of travelers' tales, people coming through town, you know, marketing their goods and saying, I've been to the Orient and I've seen a wall that is, you know, longer than you could possibly imagine. Right okay, maybe it's true, you know, <laughs> who knows, right. the world is really strange, and uh, so it was that kind of, it, I would call it more a kind of agnostic openness.
2: Correct, that's a good way to put it, yeah, Yeah. because well, you were seeing these things, traveler's tales were fascinating, especially to the, in the Middle Ages, Marco Polo, John Mandeville, um, you see these things coming back, some of them with very strange things, Marco Polo um uh, I write about it, and then Marco Polo mentioned dog-headed people, but again, you get the sense he may not actually be describing real things, and I'm going to read one little passage. I pulled it up here that I quoted from uh, Paul the Deacon, wrote, now listen to how this is put. Now, remember, cynocephaly uh, is a dog-headed person, <laughs> just so you know, cynocephaly right. is having the head of a dog, um, probably kind of, actually, if my my Latin is more uh, classical, Um they pretend that they have in their camps, kind of that is, men with dogs' heads. They spread the rumor among the enemy that these men wage war obstinately, drink human blood, and quaff their own gore if they cannot reach the foe. Now, does that sound like Paul is describing a real thing? <laughs> he right. says, they pretend that they have in their camps. Now, he's acting like this is a real thing, like we would act like Bigfoot or werewolves are a real thing. Mm. you know. And then again, Marco Polo talks about uh, Angamane, uh, an island... Um, uh, where he says, again, he says that people are no better than wild beasts, and um, they're like big mastiff dogs. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, are we are we listening to the language here, you know? Right. So it's possible that some artistic interpolations, some folk interpretations, even some of the natural history started interpreting things, saying, are there people with dog sense out there? But the real thing, how did this get attached to Christopher? And the answer that is most common... Is that people were were stupid in the Middle Ages, uh-huh. <laughs> and that if you look at it, there's a philological linguistic answer to it, and it's that Christopher was a canonite. in Latin is Cananeus, okay, with C-A-N-A, ah. and if you change C-A-N-A to C-A-N-I, you get Cananeus, which is dog man, right? So Cananeus and Cananeus you see they're one letter off so the common the common explanation for how this icon tradition developed of dog headed st christopher is that people m- misspelled canonite Cananias as canonate I'm obviously mangling the pronunciation because they're so close on purpose. Right. A uh, dog-headed person, um, and then just decided Christopher had a dog's head and ran with it. I think that's a dumb answer. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that's a very dumb answer, dumber than the idea that these people believed that. I'm inclined to think that it's a visual theological pun. I don't know that a lot of people have written this. I haven't read this answer many places. I'm not going to pretend it's original to me, but. Yeah, right now I'm going to say, I haven't read it before, and it seems to make sense. But if we look at the story of St. Christopher, what does the story tell us? He's a brute. He's basically kind of a beast. He's a giant, which would have been a monster. You know, remember giants were considered monsters, in some of the lore, he was told to be 12 feet tall. Right. And all he wanted to do was serve power. He didn't care about truth. He didn't care about beauty. He didn't care about goodness. He cared about power. Mm-hmm. Um. And he was brought low by a power greater than himself that true proved to come from a humble source, a child. This was, there's a reason Christ appears in this lore. These people weren't stupid. these people were very sharp. Mm-hmm. There's a reason Christ is a child, not a man that he's carrying across, and it's because this little boy brings this giant low and saps all his strength right. and And then we have a turnaround here, don't we? This beast then becomes what a medieval would have thought, certainly not in the in the Middle East, dogs had a bad rap. By the time we get to medieval Europe, dogs were what we would think of as dogs, more loyal, faithful servants, maybe not the bosom companions of, you know, that get pushed around in carriages and brought to hair salons like they do in the 21st century. <laughs> but certainly an, 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 a creature that was known for um, faithfulness. Okay. Right. And so what you have is a man who had beastly characteristics and was converted to faith and became a faith. And again, we have other puns in this, like the Dominicans. We just celebrated the feast day of St. Dominic, uh, Saint Dominic. Mm-hmm. the famous pun. Again, they were called the dogs of God because Dominican is dominicanus. Right. You know, dogs right. of God. That's what right. it says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and what I'm seeing here is that if this logic follows, we should have had a Western tradition of uh, depicting... Dominicans with dogs' heads, and then we would have believed that all Dominicans were half-dog. Instead, what we have in Eastern iconography tradition, it seems to me, again, this is just something I'm spitballing here, but it seems more rational than believing everyone is a moron. Um, I think what we might be having is is kind of a, a theological statement, a visual pun. You know, um, other people have other ideas that they really did believe this, and it stayed this way into the 18th century, <laughs> um, which seems much less plausible. You know, it's like when arguing with atheists, you have to figure out what seems more plausible to you, that one thing is out of out of the, your pattern, say there is a creator to the universe that makes all the rest of this make complete sense, or that one million things are completely nonsensical and you have to try to find the answer to each of them to make sense of them. Yeah. You know, uh, and the same thing goes here. Sometimes... If we stop acting like these people were idiots in the past, and trust me, I've I've spent so much time in their heads trying to think like them, uh and finding their limitations too, don't get me wrong. Certainly, you know, limitations of the the scope of what they were able to view because of the level of pure information they had at their disposal. Right. Um, they're not idiots. These are people who could memorize who memorized the Bible. <laughs> right. You know something no modern could do, you know? Right, yeah. Intellectuals today would achieve these kind of massive feats of of intellect that were routine among medieval intellectuals. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where we get to St. Christopher and his dog said, I think the Eastern tradition evolved in that way that I said. Uh, that's not at all, you know, I, I wouldn't, if somebody came along and said, I've got a document here that says you're full of it. And I would say, oh, Okay. <laughs> I guess I'll drop that idea. <laughs> but right now, it seems that going with the idea that we're looking at a theological thing here rather than a belief in a literal dog-headed saint, which would have seemed appalling in Christian traditions, right? And nonsensical in Christian traditions. Um, you know, it seems to be more rational.
1: There is just as a sample of what I, of the kind of agnostic, open-mindedness that was we were talking about earlier. There's a passage uh, out of uh, Augustine, actually. Uh, Augustine's writing in the City of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just kind of speaking of spitballing. He's just uh, somebody's asked him uh, at some point. Uh, you know, so you know, what do you think about these stories? The 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 the, the real question that he's uh, pondering is um, uh, suppose there are, you know, weird other races that we don't know about. Are they human? And what you know? So what do we do about them? You know, if we ran across these, should they be baptized? You know, and uh, so he writes this. It's really interesting because what's what's fascinating is he's working with the best information that he's got at the time. Uh, And the fascinating part is that he mixes together things that we now know are scientific realities uh, with just, you know, traveler's tales and other stuff that he's heard. Uh, Mm -hmm. So he says, uh, it's also asked whether we are to believe that certain monstrous races have been, by the way, monster here doesn't mean terror, doesn't mean people are awful. It just means strangely aberrant. Correct. Uh, so uh, whether we are to believe that certain monstrous races of men spoken of in secular history have sprung from Noah's sons, or rather, I should say, that one man from whom they themselves were descended. So what he's really saying is, are they sons of Adam? Are they human? Should they be right. reckoned as human? Sure. For it is reported that some have one eye in the middle of their forehead. So there's this sign right. from, from Odysseus. Sure. uh, uh some feet turn backward from the heel. That could actually really happen. Sure. You know, there no, I've seen with, it. Yeah. yeah. Some a double sex. Again, there are... there are uh, uh The right breast like a man, the left like a woman, and that they alternately beget and bring forth. So now we're starting to move into legend. Uh, some are said to have no mouth. That can happen. And to breathe only through the nostrils. Others are but a cubit high and are therefore called by the Greeks pygmies. <laughs> real. Turns out, you know, and it turns out, oh, well, there actually are real pygmies. Yeah. Uh, they say that in some places the women conceive in their fifth year and do not live beyond their eighth. Uh, starting to sound more like legend now. Sure. So, too, they tell of a race that have uh, two feet but only one leg. So,
2: duffel puns. <laughs> Yeah, double mud. You're right,
1: yeah. And are of marvelous swiftness, though they do not bend the knee. They are called skipides because in the hot weather they lie down on their backs and shade themselves with their feet. That found its way because Lewis, of course, is read his Augustine. Sure, uh, so they you know, they wind up uh in uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. Others are said to have no head and their eyes in their shoulders. Right, yeah, that's
2: the one I mentioned. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and other human or quasi-human races are depicted in the mosaic in the harbor esplanade of Carthage. So he doesn't live too far from Carthage, so he's seen pictures. Uh, uh, On the faith of histories of rarities. So in other words, uh, these wound up in the harbor esplanade of Carthage because a lot of sailors come in and out of Carthage, and they tell stories, and so they wound up in the, you know, uh, uh, what shall I say of the cynocephaly, whose dog-like head and barking proclaim them beasts rather than men? But we are, and then he, note what he does here, but we are not bound to believe all that we hear of these monstrosities. <laughs> and then he goes on, he says, but, and this is really interesting uh, and is extremely relevant today, uh, but he goes, he says, whoever is anywhere born a man, that is a rational, mortal animal no matter what unusual appearance he presents in color movement sound nor how peculiar he is in some power part or quality of his nature no Christian can doubt that he springs from that one protoplast we can distinguish the common human nature from that which is peculiar and therefore wonderful he will actually go on from there and say for example uh, that he personally he's met and knows a man who, incredible as it may seem, uh, is uh, uh single uh on the bottom and double on top. In other words, he's met a second oh, yeah. twin. Yeah. And uh a- and and his point to his reader is this uh these persons Are human beings, and they're to be treated as human beings. He is the exact opposite of of the legend that we hear. You know that a medieval would meet a Siamese twin and just kill them, right? You know because they're they're just monsters. He's uh, uh, his whole point is, however odd somebody may look to you, doesn't matter. Right. So if you meet the bearded woman, uh, well, guess what? You know. (laughs) uh human being doesn't matter what they look like right uh, as long as they have a rational soul and are uh, you know and, and so um uh he's it's very interesting the way his mind moves
2: yeah oh it always is i wish i'd remembered that too cuz it's a perfect example i'm glad you remembered that yeah <laughs> it really yeah It really nails that point
1: right yeah And uh, so, you know, but what's also interesting here is uh, I I stole this actually from uh, Michael Flynn. He's a science fiction writer. Sure. And what what Flynn is pointing out is that the work that is today, the work of speculative uh, 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 moral fiction that Mm -hmm. is today done uh, almost exclusively in science fiction and fantasy novels, uh, and placed on other planets you know your your headed <laughs> men wind up on some sure. other planet in some other galaxy in science fiction uh This was all being done uh in the fifth century by augustine <laughs> uh but he didn't know what a planet was uh but the stories were simply placed on you know the islands in the antipodes or or wherever. Sure. Uh, but it was, it, the was, same question. it
2: was Augustine a student of, you know, uh, the, uh, in philosophy, he would have been a descendant, I mean, uh, philosophically of Plato. Right. He yeah. would spin out, you know, Atlantis, which everybody went looking for because Plato, I, I imagine <laughs> Socrates and Plato, he's like, I, it was an analogy, people. It was, yeah. yeah. It's a metaphor. It's an image. Leave
1: it alone. Yeah. And and so, you know, what's fascinating to me is, you know, with the the question of dog-headed men, are they human? Uh, Yeah. In both uh, the speculative theology that Augustine is doing here, uh, but also in the the legends uh, of the Middle Ages, what you actually find uh, is a remarkably uh, open uh, temper toward uh, the possibility uh, of, wh- how should we put it, new life and new civilizations <laughs> and probably <laughs> going where no man has gone before. You know, there no
2: split infinitive has gone before.
1: Yeah, uh, but that's, uh, uh, that's very much the temper of the Middle Ages, is if you meet something strange, uh, that doesn't mean that uh, uh, God did not make it.
2: Right, and they were uh, open to that because they had not cataloged the world. And there was this classical right. and medieval mania for cataloging the world that you again see in Pliny and you see again in Isidore of Seville. Um, right. You know, uh, they wanted to know what was out there and knew they hadn't. There was no Wikipedia, <laughs> you know, right, the traveling, yeah. would, they were relo- re- relying on travelers' tales. Yeah. They, I imagine they came back and they, you know, they would read, you know, sources meant a lot to them. When you have Herodotus saying things, you know, about whatever, Amazons or whatever things he right. comes up with, you know, now they call Herodotus, you know, he was the father of history to them. Now they joke he's the father of lies. He actually, uh-huh. you know not to be a jerk, he was the father of history. Okay, people, so leave the father alive. Yeah.
1: I, think, I think of Herodotus as kind of like your interesting uncle.
2: Yeah, and yeah. it's just a catalog of stuff. Yeah,
1: he's just like, well, here's, here's something I heard. Thing I heard you know? <laughs> That's right. It's something I heard. Could be true. Out there.
2: Yeah. See, now we've got this academic hair splitting that we've had for the last 100, 150, however long since the... I would, I would put it to the mid-19th century, mainly. I wouldn't even put it all the way back to the Enlightenment. I think we started getting this kind of hyper-literalism later, in which it was like, well, boy, boy they sure didn't know nothing. They, they included this in their history books, or just must have been a damn fool or liar. It's like yeah. <laughs> he was hearing stuff and reporting it. He thought that's a cool story. I'm going to put yeah. that down. Was well, it true? And and I also, don't know.
1: <laughs> also in antiquity, uh, this is th- there's an interesting um, uh, uh, book. I'm trying to remember the t- I think it might be called um, I can't remember. But the but the thesis of the book uh is that the categories that we have created, uh, you know, science and within the sciences, sure. all, all these subcategories of biology and chemistry and and so on and so forth, uh, uh, science, uh, religion, uh, art, uh, uh, and so forth, and, and philosophy. But that's, I'm sorry, that's the title of the book, Before Philosophy. mm mm-hmm. uh, uh, these are all categories that we invented later in order to put our knowledge in boxes. Sure. And those categories did not exist for ancients, which is why you could have people, for example, Babylonian astrologers, who could just as easily be described as Babylonian astronomers. Sure. Because there was no division being made there,
2: or there alchemists
1: right what 's an alchemist is an alchemist a magician or a scientist and the answer
2: or a is chemist yes, yes, you know, yes, both the answer yeah, is yes was, a you know. chemist. And, was he looking what he was what he was looking for a fruitless endeavor probably <laughs> was the methods he employed stupid anti no they were the groundings of chemistry Right, yeah. really- <laughs>
0: and,
2: and so the, the the
1: the the categories that that we 've created that we think are hard and fast barriers that separate uh you know real knowledge from some other fake kind of knowledge It's like none of that existed for uh for the ancients uh and so you know uh, uh, the uh, the kinds of divisions that we keep looking for weren't there for them because they were still they were just exploring their world. And trying right. to figure out how the connections were made. So, Pythagoras, for example, who we all think of as a mathematician, also believed in the transmigration of souls.
2: Sure, of course you, you know? do. I mean, and look, that extends a long time. People now, and I routinely see this piece about Sir Isaac Newton. Well, sure, he gave us this, but he was a nutbird because most of his writing was about mysticism and alchemy. And I'm like, that's a complete continuity, people. You're just like, you're right. missing something. It's not like, let's shear off half of Isaac Newton's genius and say it was madness. It's like, right. it's all of a piece.
1: Well, and, and you know, and it, it comes back to, you know, interesting realizations. So, for example, you'll get people who say, I'm a scientist. I don't believe in anything that <laughs> I can't touch. And it's like, uh, and that's why I don't believe in souls, you know? Right. for For somebody like Pythagoras, you know Pythagoras's response would have been uh show me a number, let me touch a number right
2: right let me uh, touch the love your wife and children have for you right you know and, and so, so calculation on that one both
1: both math for example uh and theology concern themselves with things which do not participate in time, space, matter, and energy, sure uh yeah. And the irony, of course, is that we could not know about time, space, matter, and energy without math. That's the language that these things are written in. Sure, um, but uh, math itself, uh, of necessity, is dealing with things that transcend this. And so, for somebody like Pythagoras to also take seriously the existence of souls in his world, yeah. <laughs> Why not? You know? It makes <laughs> I mean, perfect sense. Souls are just as real as math is. Just as real as numbers are, you know. See
2: I, I feel kind of sorry for a lot of the contemporary science uh scientists because I know that their education is lacking. I know that the hyper specialization is not only keeping them away, keeping them from really delving into great works of philosophy and literature at the depth which they need, but has instilled in them a contempt for philosophy so that they say there is no need for philosophy. You know, that philosophy is a dead thing. It's not, It's not. you know, and all these things. And then you realize they've never actually encountered the mind of Augustine. And so they can't know that the questions they're supposed to be asking in, in one way can be asked in many other ways. I had a piece um, I wrote. Uh, Augustine and the questions of creation that I think's on the register, and there 's a long litany in his book on Genesis. I did a deep study on Genesis when I was getting one of my degrees and um it was published you know in different places it was uh, it, there was a paper published but um in genesis he uh, on Genesis, Augustine has this litany of questions he fires off about things that don't make any sense in the Genesis account, you know? Did he make plants before the sun that you need plants to grow? Why are there two creation stories? Why is there light before there's sunlight? Why is there this? Why is there that? You know, and he fires off all of these questions, realizing that they they fit perfectly well with an understanding of the world if you understand it correctly. Mm -hmm. If you read Genesis especially correctly. You know, uh, he begins with profound questions like how did God produce something changeable in time bound without any change in himself? You know, what is meant by heaven and earth? What is material creation? What is an abyss? If there's no matter, where's the abyss? What does abyss mean? You know, this is things Augustine does in his seminal work on creation. These are the questions. um, They're hard questions. Mm -hmm. And he leads with them. You know i I came back to the church, I guess we 're now almost we might be coming almost on twenty years, eighteen years since I returned. I returned because of Thomas Aquinas and his logical way of approaching these problems, but mm-hmm. i won 't say I stayed because of Augustine, but I certainly converted to augustine to Augustinianism because of that mind is like no mind that has ever walked this earth. And if you, if you spend time with the Trinitatis or City of God or on the literal meaning of Genesis or his homilies on John, you realize that there's this vast ocean in this man's mind that was open to these things. And this quote you had from... Um, on the monsters is perfect and perfect example Yeah, you know he didn't really know if there was he was perfectly i think he sounds kind of skeptical myself i think he sounds like that doesn't sound there that doesn't yeah. sound likely but he knows that the world's a very strange and mysterious place and he's seen a guy with with two bodies <laughs>
1: you know exactly yeah you and, know? and so i don't like, know I, yeah it's you know it's just you know i've seen some weird things with my own eyes who am i to say that they're there cannot be right. dog-headed <laughs> men, you know. And, yeah. and his, his thought... approach is, well let's go look. And if there are, then that's fine. Yeah. But I'm not—he uh, also says I'm not going to worry about this too much until <laughs> right. it comes up, you know.
2: Yeah, and, you know.
1: And, and, yeah, so it's mm-hmm. a—it's it, a—and it, that's the thing that I—I've always appreciated about the faith is that the faith looks at things and is willing to say, there's a great quote from Mark Twain. Uh, At one point he he says, I was gratified to be able to answer promptly. I don't know. (laughs) And and that's a lot of how the faith approaches things. So, you know, uh, one of the, you know, so contemporary issues, uh, the question of homosexuality. The church says we don't know why people are gay. <laughs> not right. a clue, right? No idea. not, you know? not, not our area of expertise. Yeah, it's, and and that's stop you, asking what what the church does. Uh, the, the difference, the difference between uh, one of the one of the things that the the, the church uh, promulgates. Uh, is dogma. Dogma is not a happy, word with happy associations for moderns because what they hear is close-minded, ignorant, you know, well, dogmaticism, right? This is the way things are. And really, the, the difference between dogma and ideology is this, and I've always appreciated this distinction. Ideology says this is the one thing that really matters and it explains absolutely everything about the world right <laughs> everything yeah. is electricity right. everything, everything is
2: power economics
1: yeah. yeah everything is economics everything is race the everything. oppression
2: of the worker
1: yeah and, and, and that's that's how ideology works it takes one idea and turns it into the all explaining theory of everything what what the church's approach is is different. It says there's just a whole universe of things we don't know. Uh and are still learning about and we have partial knowledge of. Here is one thing that we do know. We're not going to try and say that we understand everything. We don't. The universe is like super weird, right? <laughs> Right. And there's all these weird things out there, you know. And I'm pretty sure some of it was put there just to mess with <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, the so the church can go along completely ignorant of dinosaur bones in the ground for <laughs> the first 1,800 years of its existence, and then somebody starts noticing dinosaur bones in the ground. Now, of course, people had always been noticing dinosaur bones in the ground, but they never connected it with anything, and so it didn't become a thing until the middle of the 19th century. And then suddenly people start putting together, you know, oh, there's a lot of these, and they seem to be connected, and we're starting to discover a pattern. And at that point, the church does not say, there are no such things as dinosaurs. Shut up.
2: No, no, my favorite is that they were put there to test your faith. They're
1: put there to test your faith. The church just goes, okay, well, that's another new weird thing. (laughs) Go to it. Let's see what we can find out you know and then just kind of leaves people uh with their you know particular field of expertise to work it out and you know report back when you got something interesting to talk about oh cool you know and the church has always taken that approach to the weirdness of the universe because the church after all began with a guy who rose from the dead which right. is pretty weird you know <laughs> Weird. Yeah, it's so who to knows weird. what other weird things there are out there that's why I love what you're doing Oh, thank uh, because a uh, weird Catholic uh, acknowledges that man the universe is strange yeah. <laughs> and,
2: <laughs> and, mo- uh, and, and most of it wound up like, like iron filings to a magnet in the Catholic Church because you know we took the weirdness and we said let's make that work for us I know we'll take human bones and make chapels of them <laughs> I know. I'll get a saint's arm, encase it in gold, stick it on a pole, march it through town, touch it to people's heads, <laughs> and then say prayers. And then when it cures them, <laughs> we'll thank God for
1: it. Because man, what a weird universe we live in!
2: It would be so much more boring. That's what the, you know, if you look at the little about thing on Weird Catholic, there's this hilarious quote from John uh, John Adams. It's a very famous quote in which he went in. He must have stumbled into a mass at some point. You must know this quote, right?
1: I think you're, About- tell me
2: the afternoon's entertainment was to me most awful and affecting this is john adams you know one of the fathers of the country the poor wretches fingering their beads chanting latin not a word of which they understood their paternosters and ave maria's their holy water they're crossing themselves perpetually they're bowing to the name of jesus whenever they hear it their bowings kneelings genuflections the dress of the priest was rich white lace his pulpit was velvet and gold the altarpiece is very rich little images and crucifixes about wax candles lighted up but how shall I describe the picture of our Savior in a frame of marble over the altar at full length upon the cross, in agonies and blood dripping and streaming from his ruins? The music, consisting of an organ and choir of singers, went all the afternoon except sermon time, and the assembly chanted most sweetly and exquisitely. Now here's the tell. Here is everything which can lay hold of the eye, ear, and imagination, everything which can charm and bewitch the simple and ignorant. I wonder how Luther ever broke the spell. Now... My response to that is, why the hell would you want to? (laughs) You have five senses, John. You got five of them. Why are you only using one to worship? (laughs) Why is the majesty that has is 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 some little itty bitty way trying to capture? the grandeur of this amazing universe and God that we worship, trying to do homage to him in the most purely beautiful way we can conceive, which a Mozart or a Bach can concoct or confect uh, a musical mass, or uh, a tailor could make uh, a set of vestments or a goldsmith, a cross, using the most absolute height of his skill in Devotion to God. Why would you throw that away? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it's, and that we still have that. And we lost a lot of it. You know, I'm not one of these, you know, there's no illusion. It's not like the pre-conciliar church was great. If it was great, it wouldn't have become the post-conciliar church. (laughs) It wouldn't have blown apart as fast as it did. No, there were serious problems, you know. And I've written about this before in in an interview I did with Jermaine Grisez, you know. Mm -hmm. But we did lose something, you know, in in, in that height of gorgeousness, which we could really achieve in some ways, you know, uh, in, you know, everything that can lay height. Hold of the eye, ear, and imagination. You know, wouldn't you want to do that? Isn't that how we should worship? And some of that, yes, when you take that, and especially you go back to the area I spend my time in so much, when you go back to the Middle Ages, their sensory worlds were different. It's not that they were that their minds were different and that they were dumber. It's not that their hearts were different and that they were crueler, but their sensory world had a different texture to it. It had a different language. It spoke differently, Mm -hmm. you know, and you have to learn that language. And when you start to unfold it, it seems really, really weird sometimes, you know, when you get back to old, you know, when you get back to a practice like the boy bishops, at Christmas, in which a boy was made bishop and with all the powers of the bishop for 24 hours and paraded around in a, you know, a set of and all the rest, you know, and it's like, oh, that's a little weird, guys, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but you understand that this is partly, you know, what we would call vocations encouragement today, but also partly a reward to altar servers, partly, uh, in a way, it was a continuation of a medieval practice of uh, the Lord of Misrule you know it was baptizing old habits of of social inversion in which the lowest were made the highest you know so there are all kinds of of tells when you actually begin to unfold the language of history and the language especially of folklore and folk history and and, and this Very elusive thing, folk piety. You know, uh, popular piety is is an obsession of mine to some degree because it can't really exist as a field of study because nobody who practiced it left us their story. You know, by, by the dint of the fact that it was popular meant it was, frankly, subliterate. Mm -hmm. You know, so any account we would have of it would come from somebody who didn't do it, would come from the elites, the people speaking Latin, the people who were left behind the texts. Right. But you get glimpses of it now and then about what people really did and what they really felt and how they practiced this faith. And it's just utterly transfixing, you know, uh, when you start to look into the way we've we adapted our folktales, our customs, our holidays, our practices to give greater glory to God and made it the center of our worlds, you know, and it can be pretty weird. And that's kind of what we do a little bit on the website um, is going into some of those practices, not to bring them out and make fun of them. I would never do that. I've just, because I think this is cool. Look at this, you know, like Augustine, it's like, this is neat. And yeah. I think I would like to think we could recapture it. And bring it back, re-enchant the world is the is the mission. I, I, the world is disenCHANTed, and I imagine it's going to stay that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm afraid that that particular bloom is off the rose that will never get back that mind of the medieval peasant, where you know demons and angels fought every day for their souls.
1: Well, you and... still do have uh, one of the things that interests me, uh, because you could look at. Uh, there's two ways you can look at it. it it's you could call it post-Christian, but I think you can just as easily call it pre-Christian. Uh, right. Is, for example, uh, the phenomenon of the New Age, which is what it really is—is is it's a it's a search for sacramentality. Sure. A- and uh, I, you know, I, I had a conversation years ago. I had a conversation uh, that has stuck with me. Uh, uh, Twenty years ago, I was at work downtown. Uh, in Seattle, you know, in in an office building in the heart of the most technologically sophisticated uh, civilization on planet Earth. And there was a woman in the office next to me, you know college education, super bright, <laughs> uh, uh, really nice <laughs> really nice gal, right? And she's sitting next to me, and the radio's playing and it's playing Joan Osborne. Uh, uh <laughs> if God, what if God was one of us? One of us, yes. And she looked at me in total seriousness, and she said, "Wouldn't that be a really interesting idea for a story?" <laughs> and I, and I said, "What?" She said, "Like if God became like a human being." <laughs> and I just thought to myself, "The fields are white for harvest." You know, You're right. I mean, it's because th- th- I'm living in Seattle, which is uh, the least church city and the least church state in the nation. I think Portland may have beat us by now, but <laughs> um, uh total post-Christian city. And uh, and she's I mean, she's she's looking for Jesus. You know, that's it's, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, you know, <laughs> right. If God became a human being, it's like, yeah, you could call it, you know, like the greatest story ever told or something, you know?
2: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I mean, that's kind of, it makes, you know, it's sad to see the the sunset on Christendom, you know, Ratzinger's um, prediction that the church would shrink and that when it does, people will be very lonely. They're going to be very sad mm-hmm. when that enchantment is gone and we're already missing it. That's why we're having a national nervous breakdown right now yeah. is because we've we've. We, we've missed a world where we matter uh, on a cosmic level, on, on a truly eternal level. Your soul matters, mm-hmm. you know, and we've we've wiped that away so that we're smart meat. You know, we're moist computers and, um, you know, we're nothing come from nothing, go to nothing and might as well have fun along the way. And that's going, you know, Ratzinger pointed out that that world will be impossibly lonely and they will find the community of Christians as this warm light in the darkness, you know, and that's hopefully what we have to be is always be that light. We do a kind of a crummy job of it sometimes, yeah. but you um, have to kind of keep that light burning, you know, and remember that, you know, in a lot of ways, the things, and this is one more point. I, I know we're probably coming to the end here, but one more point I make in the introduction on Weird Catholic is that American Catholics, and I have no other context, uh, but my own has spent... Our time here in America expunging our uniqueness, you know, trying to flatten us ourselves out to fit in, trying to sand off the rough edges of our distinctives, the things that made us weird, you know, and, um, we finally have achieved it, we're finally fit right in and are indistinguishable in both what we believe and what we practice than any other routine bog standard boring wasp you know <laughs> yeah you know, so we we've done it, you know, and then I find the pockets, and you always find the pockets. the pockets survive the survival of these things is mind blowing and beautiful and I went into Philadelphia Elizabeth and I my wife and I went into Philadelphia about a month ago for a feast a Gennaro was it a Gennaro feast? No, I can't remember. I think that was probably not when the day was, but it was a full procession of saints statues through the streets of Philadelphia with a hmm. Catholic Knights brass band with people sticking dollars to the ribbons you know which was how they raised money and handing out holy cards and a priest leading it. In you know fully vested um uh, sprinkling the crowd of of a street fair, you know people drinking beer and and having hot dogs in downtown Philly in the, the Italian neighborhood with holy water <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, it always finds a way you know that's that's gonna look dang odd to people, and I'm <laughs> thinking, good. Good. It was beautiful. We followed the whole thing. We didn't miss a bit. And one thing was we cut over for a part of it to to go because we'd seen it and we were going to have some food. And when we came back, it had swelled. And the lady Our Lady of Guadalupe, which started with one little family pushing the cart with Our Lady of Guadalupe on it, had ballooned to like forty or fifty people maybe in different areas coming and going, and a band, you know, people playing guitar and singing hymns to our lady. And it had just drawn people in and, and the procession was growing. And, you know, that kind of survival, you know, that gives me hope, you know, because yeah. that's weird in the most wonderful way possible because yeah. it's out there. It's, it's so Catholic, a procession of saints statues. And there was maybe 20 of them, you know, Lucy with her eyeballs, you in a plate, you know, and I'm like, Go put it out there, man. That's rocking. It. That's metal. That is totally metal. You know, there's, you know, it was, and, you know, there's ever some, there some pretty vivid saints out there too. You know, and that's the kind of thing that that we need to kind of recapture, and we can recapture. You know, yeah. a simple thing, The saints procession through a street fair, is something that never really went away. You know, you find them in New York. You know, the St. Gennaro Festival uh, is this month, I believe, um, in uh, Little Italy, Italy New York. And, you know, our Knights of Columbus runs a bus in there.
1: We do that. uh, um, My parish is called Blessed Sacrament. (laughs) So uh, uh, on Feast of Corpus Christi, we'll have a procession. It'll go around the block, you know. Right. And, uh, yeah, I love that, you know.
2: Yeah, and you know, imagine what I mean. You were—I was never on the outside. I know you were. Um, uh, You were—you were one of the heathen unbaptized. I I, I really was. When when you came in the tent, did something like a street procession seem very weird to you?
1: Well, no, because it was all new. I mean, it was like uh, i I don't know how they do things here. (laughs) This is why, by the way, I have virtually never written. About liturgy war stuff, right? Because my uh, I have always been one of those people who's like, "Who cares what you think?" You know, right? (laughs) You know, you swan into the Catholic Church two thousand years after it started, and start going, you know, this is not up to my uh, right (laughs) aesthetic. uh, You know, it's like. uh, oh, shut up, you know, so I just I, I never got into that stuff it was it was just like who would possibly want to hear what I think about the aesthetics of the of how the liturgy is celebrated I'll just, uh, so I've always been one of those people that's just like, give me my lines and my blocking I'll do whatever your thing is that you say to do so it's like, oh, today's a Corpus Christi procession, okay, I'll do that you know? I, I don't know anything, you know and uh, yeah, so uh, uh, I love all of that stuff and uh, uh, enjoy it all. So uh, yeah, fantastic.
2: Well, all right. Well, you know, if uh, if listeners want to go, they'll find. I was hoping we we got off like we usually used to on tangents, but there's one other one other thing that's getting some attention up there, and it may still be on the front page. If not, just scroll down a couple things, and it's called "Does Bloodstain Pattern Analysis Prove the Shroud is Fake?" and it's a it's a fairly <laughs> It's a fairly obnoxious piece. I was in a mood when I wrote it, okay. Because these, these two yahoos, which we can talk if you want to do this again some other day, maybe uh, did that? this absolutely yeah. absurd. And you can watch the video test about how the blood stains would have flown, how blood would have flown on, uh, would have flowed on a human body if it was on a cross, you know, with these ridiculous experiments involving uh, coagulated blood and little plastic tubing on a guy in a laboratory who had not spent the last three hours being whipped and beaten to a pulp, and then says, well, the blood doesn't flow where I think it should if he was on a cross, so the cross didn't happen. Um, oh,
1: come on. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: so it's... It, I- it was, and, but, the, but the point of that was that this story flew around the world at light speed, and you know what the headline was, right?
1: You uh, can guess. Shroud proven to be fraud. Correct! Or... Yeah, You've okay. got
2: it in one. Yeah. New, re- new scientific research proves Shroud a fake. And I'm like, that didn't even <laughs> prove these guys actually knew how to perform an experiment, much yeah. less prove that this the object a thousand miles away isn't real.
1: I think that there are a hundred reasons to think that the Shroud is absolutely genuine. It is It is so obvious to me that this is the real deal. Uh, yeah, It just amazes me that people are still working so well. Of course, it, it doesn't amaze me. <laughs> right. Uh, precisely because it is obviously genuine.
2: I believe uh, it's genuine. But I'm willing, really, you know, I always approach each one of these. And I have to say on the other side, about a year or two ago, a thing was published on the other side, in the same journal that published this study, actually, and I think they retracted this study. I may be wrong about that. But this report on was from our side, said that the the blood when it was analyzed was the blood, the heart's blood of a man who had experienced trauma. And I read that report, and I'm like... Yeah, that seems like junk science to me. Uh, <laughs> you know? yeah, I'm like, I know this one would actually be one for my team, but I don't actually buy anything you just said. You know So he yeah, has a lot of junk on both sides. You know, the most fascinating thing about the shroud is that you couldn't actually see the dang thing until the 19th century. I was trying to explain to my son the whole thing about the negative. Images, right? You know how it only really the depths of the of the detail on it only became clear when when we first looked at the negatives. And he said, "So the idea is that a guy in the 12th or 13th century created something that could only be seen with technology." In 800 years, when they invent photography, this is going to be awesome. going to be great. I'm going to really mess with their heads. Then. <laughs> I'm you know, like, wow, man, I don't have that much faith, I Really, yeah. you know, in, in people's ability to do crazy crap. Yeah. You know, I think, it, you know, one day I may just wake up to the report that we've now taken a piece from the very center. We've subjected it to the most rigorous possible testing, which, by the way, would not necessarily be carbon-14 because a thousand variables can skew carbon-14 findings. Right. But said, yeah. no question anymore, this was made in the 12th century. I'd be like, that's too bad. <laughs> and by the way, my second thought would be, how the heck did they do that? Well, you still haven't explained it.
1: That has always been, that's my standing challenge to all the people who say it's a fake. It's like, okay, make another one.
2: But see, then that's they it. still I don't like, know
1: how it was done.
2: Oh no! See, the thing is, I there's these. I always watch the document. I never miss them, especially the skeptical ones, because skeptics irritate me to no end, and I kind of like to be irritated. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a guy who said he'd absolutely recreated the shroud, and he showed his methods, and he did something to himself. I don't remember what. He painted himself with iodine. What, what something idiotic, and he wrapped himself in a in. Whatever, and then he proved and then he held it up, see I've reproduced the shroud and I'm thinking That's nothing like the shroud it doesn't look anything like it. <laughs> I know I but know ba- that, I've, seen, I've seen
1: I've seen the, the reproductions of the shroud and it's like No, this really is chocolate. It's not carob, it is really chocolate.
2: That really doesn't look anything like it. You've, uh, the only person you're fooling is yourself. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking, well, one day maybe we'll know. I, I just like that it's out there. And, again, I think it's one of those wonderful things left there to keep us guessing. But, yep. you know, when you look at it, a few years ago they took the data, they they programmed the, the facial data in the computers um, to create a – and what they found was that if you pull the data up – You know, the density, the distance of the shadows and things on the face, you actually you actually find an actual 3D image. There's actually 3D data embedded in in that negative image so that if you extend it outwards, you have, you know, Jesus's face is very, very strange and flat on it, kind of. Mm -hmm. But you can actually create a three dimensional picture from the data present on that image which would be a dang weird thing to paint the least thing we know is that it's like 800 years old i mean there's no question that's off that's that that one's set in rock minimum um that would really be quite something to have achieved <laughs> three dimensional data planes <points. laughs>
1: just you know? uh, well you know if you already uh, you know are able to foresee um, uh, <laughs> negative photography negative photography i mean you know digital uh, digital imagery is a piece of cake yeah
2: so, all uh, right so yeah go check it out <laughs> i don't know the uh, there might be some fun stuff there add it to your facebook page or what are your twitter feed and we'll uh, we'll We'll send you a steady diet of, of weirdness.
1: All right, cool. Well, Tom McDonald, I want to thank you for creating Weird Catholic. Really? You this have... is a
2: reunion of of sorts. This is our first one in what a year or so. Yeah, this we bring, have. bringing the band back. This is like the Beatles rooftop concert or something.
1: Well, we'll have you. You know, we'll have you back we can talk about more weird stuff one of these days. Yeah, we be,
2: should that. do that. Be fun.
1: All right. All right. Well, cool well i want to thank you uh, mr tom mcdonald uh, owner and proprietor of weird catholic uh for being on the show today you've been listening to connecting the dots i was your host mark shea and i will be your host mark Shay, when next we meet on connecting the dots bye Bye.
0: introducing the redesigned catholicsingles.com featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith not just a profile picture for the past 20 years faithful Catholics have used catholicsingles.com and the reimagined catholicsingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics remember catholicsingles.com for faith, fellowship and love